What's going on, everybody? This is Eric Elliott back with another episode of the Refocus Nutrition Podcast. This week, we have on an awesome guest. We have on Renaissance Periodization's Dr. James Hoffman. Uh, Dr. James Hoffman is one of the founders of RP, but also is also like he's just a really good resource when it comes to um, muscular strength training, uh, resistance training, but also recovery and this is something he goes really into a lot on this uh podcast like we just we dive into everything recovery when it comes to how much volume is appropriate for training so how much and how often should we train how far over should we reach into that stress adaptation phase of training um but also we just go into like the nutrition side of things when it comes to training and, and recovery but also the the different methodologies of recovery when it comes to um whether it be chiro, whether it be, you know, active stimulation, muscle stimulation, all these kinds of various different things and and methods that people use to treat recovery and overtraining um, to see what works, what doesn't work, and what people are wasting too much money on. And I think it's one of the... Honestly, I think this is one of the best podcasts I've done so far just because James is a really... He's very, like, straightforward in terms of his answers. And I think one of the things that I walked away with the most from this episode is that, like nutrition, the simplest answer is often almost always the right answer. So I think people are always looking for this extravagant answer and thinking they're this... They're part of the 0.01% of the population that a certain technology or a certain methodology will work perfectly for when really... It's just about getting enough sleep, having enough recovery through lifestyle practices that, and stress reduction that is going to make a difference to recovering from training. It's not, it's not all these different things like foam rolling and all these different things that people get obsessed with, um, that they're wasting too much time and resources on. Um, very similar to supplements in the nutrition industry, you don't need to spend the money on that thing. You just need to do the simple things like tracking your food and measuring your macros to uh to great success so that's enough for me guys i'll let you enjoy this show with james hoffman as always leave me a rating and review but uh yeah reach out to me what you thought about this episode talk to me about it um but also yeah reach out if you want any assistance on coaching anytime in the future thanks and have a great day guys and enjoy the enjoy the show and we are back guys with another Awesome guest this week. We have on Dr. James Hoffman from Renaissance Periodization. Uh, Ms. James Hoffman was one of the people, uh, one of the authors on the recovery uh, manual that is probably one of the most comprehensive recovery manuals you can come that you can ever encounter. It's recovering from training, how to manage fatigue to maximize performance from Renaissance Periodization. And it came out, I believe, a couple of years ago, if I can remember correctly, at least. I know I read it at least or at least a year ago um before talking with james i had to uh definitely brush up on the manual and go through all the things and and there's so much that i took took from it the second time and even going through it and just sifting through there's so much stuff that i didn't know before even when i read it the first time so it's nice to be uh nice to be talking with you thanks so much for coming on james thanks for so much for having me and i really appreciate everything you said about our book it's been so long i can't even remember i thought we did like an audio <laughs> version i can't keep track of all these crazy rp projects yeah, even I forget. Is there an audio book? I feel like the audio book with you or, or Mike <laughs> talking the entire time would be almost more comical than the uh, educational aspect that people can get from it. Yeah, there. So yeah, it's on Audible and uh, iTunes and all that stuff. We did the recovery book and the most recent diet book, and yours truly 
is the uh, the speaker, and you would be surprised how hard it is to uh, even with a PhD <laughs> to just read off something and not make mistakes. It's surprisingly difficult. So it was a fun it was a fun project. Yeah, I can imagine it's a different endeavor than anything you kind of normally go about doing. It's not like like you said, it's not like you know the content, but it's not like you were just presenting it the way you would at a seminar, which you've done over and over and over again. That's where I met you, but it's you have to stick exactly to the vernacular on the page so i can totally understand that that would be pretty hard to present that way yeah for sure and people were asking like are you going to be burping in there i'm like no it's a book i can't ad lib stuff in there it's just right from the book <laughs> um so let's dive right into it um my first question was why did you want to study study and present a a book if you will or information in a comprehensive way for recovery because it's something that you know, it wasn't, there, there is studies on it, obviously, and that's where you guys got all your information, but there was never anything kind of put together like that in, in such a comprehensive way that you guys did. So what was your, what piqued your interest uh, initially to do that? Yeah, so I had kind of dabbled in it before my PhD um, advisor at the time uh, was a really, really big recovery research guy, Dr. Bill Sands. He's awesome. And he had just collected this like huge massive plethora of resources on recovery. So while I was studying under him, I was fortunate enough to have seen a lot of that stuff and just thought it was interesting. But recovery was definitely not my first kind of pursuit. I was actually, my dissertation was on uh, sled pushing with rugby guys. And I was much more into the, the training side of things than the recovery side per se. And once I've started working with RP and we kind of were up and running and doing lots of projects and clients and seminars and stuff, we kept kind of getting a lot of goofy questions on recovery stuff where people would say like, oh, you know, should I be doing more ice baths or more compression time? Or what do you think about, you know, cupping and all this and that? And Mike and I would kind of run into the same problem where we'd be like, who gives a shit about that stuff? That doesn't, that's not important. Like, are you doing like really fundamental things, right? Like, are you getting enough sleep? And they'd be like, no. Like, are you monitoring your calories and your body weight? No. Are you keeping your training logs? Like, are you monitoring like how, when your performance starts to go down? No, it's like, well, none of this other shit matters, bro. What are you thinking? So that was kind of our, it was, it was selfish in that we got a lot of questions about recovery and we kind of uh, selfishly got tired of kind of reiterating these same ideas. Like, why are you looking at all these crazy, fun, new, sexy things, but then you're also just neglecting some things to us that seem like common sense. So we really decided, you know what, maybe we should actually consolidate some of these ideas into a usable form so that we don't have to keep answering a lot of these same questions about recovery over and over again. And so we kind of started piecemealing our thoughts together. And ironically, that's how our other book, the Volume Landmarks book kind of came to be where we ended up having so much to say about training because that's, that's Mike and my background is more on the training side of things. Uh, we had so much to say about the training part of it. We ended up making a whole different book in the process. And then we, once we got that out of the way, we said, okay, now let's actually look at some of this other more recovery specific stuff and see if we can kind of put some of these ideas into easy to understand categories. Can we kind of rank order them with a hierarchical structure so that people understand that although there's dozens, if not hundreds of things you could feasibly do, some of them have less impact. Some of them are less practical and all of the above, right? So uh, we just wanted to kind of illustrate this idea of there are varying degrees of significance in a lot of these choices and most of these choices come with some degree of trade-off that people need to be aware of so that was really kind of our motivation was we just ended up getting a lot of questions about it and we uh <laughs> found ourselves repeating ourselves a lot and we said you know why don't we just make we have, there seems to be enough interest in this let's just make it a book and make it really easy for people to understand 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And it, it seems like in the last bit, I don't know if it's, if it's come from a specific uh, realm, whether that's like CrossFit, whether that's bodybuilding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when it comes to recovery, the people are, are more interested. And I definitely agree with you. Like, and in, in it's obviously it's, it's proliferated within the, the fitness market, if you will, in terms of like Fitbits, all these other kinds of devices or whoop bands or HRV and stuff like that we'll get into um, that people are making tons of money on and had lots of interest. And when you started out on your, on your research for the book and for the material, um, what were some of the, the preconceived notions that you had about recovery that um, you ended up being kind of surprised by, or were there any, I guess, to start off with? There was a lot of surprises along the way. And I think since you're already familiar with the book, one of them was, and I reiterate this throughout the book, a lot of the times was there seems to be a lot of confounders to a lot of the ideas that are presented uh, as recovery modalities. So people will say, have you tried doing breathing techniques? Have you tried doing like meditation or yoga? Have you tried doing, you know, all these different things. And when you're thinking about these things, like what do they actually do, right? They, we kind of start to see that they tend to converge to a lot of similar ideas. And one of them, which we highlight in the book is just relaxation, right? We're taking mm -hmm. somebody and they're in a heightened either um, physical or psychological state, right? They're just arous their arousal level, their physical arousal, psychological arousal is very high. And you're essentially giving them either time or an activity which helps bring them back down to basal levels, which ends up being very, very positive for recovery. And so that was one of these things where when we were trying to like narrow our ideas, we were like, wait, this isn't anything new or unique. This is basically just like a, a, another way of doing relaxation. And we kind of had a lot of the same kind of funneling effect for a lot of the things that we looked at and we were like, wow, it turns out like a lot of these things that people are presenting as like really useful recovery modalities are more of just like a means to an end. And if anything, they don't necessarily have a direct effect, but they're kind of a catalyst per se to get people to do other positive things. Like massage was another really good one where people thought we were um, really bagging on massage really hard and we weren't trying to. And when people ask, like, so what do you think about massage? We usually say, well, you know, that doesn't, it probably doesn't have the physical effects that people think it does. But that being said, if it gets your athlete to put their phone down, to relax, to be stress-free for an hour, to enjoy some compassionate touch, some social support, some relaxation time, that's like super positive, right? But ultimately, what do we say about massage? Well, it's probably more on the latter things than the actual massage itself. So those were kind of just like little epiphanies that just seemed to kind of keep popping up along the way when we started looking at some of this stuff. It's, there's a very kind of uh, converging nature to a lot of the choices that we make where it's like, okay, is this something that is uh, like an active recovery method or a passive recovery method? And we see that that explains quite a bit of the variance. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, it's really interesting that can, it can have such an individual um, basis or an individual experience with all of those factors kind of involved. One of the things I kind of wanted to start off with was how you guys define fatigue and how you broke it down into fatigue. Um, because one of the things that I, I find with clients inside of the gym that people don't really understand is, is the concept of fatigue and how there's acute fatigue as you guys basically put it into and also cumulative fatigue. And now not only does that, you know, do those types of fatigue matter inside of the gym, a lot of people aren't, aren't collecting that type of information and how fatigue gathers in the other probably 23 hours that they're not spending inside of the gym. So can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because those other 23 hours throughout the day are probably more impactful than the one to two hours that you spent in the gym, right? So it turns out when you go and train, you are certainly causing internal disruptions. You're certainly doing overload training, which is hard on the body. But at the same time, like you don't really burn a ton of calories. You don't really see huge, massive disruptions in the body on like the systemic level. But when you have people who are living kind of forgive the language, kind of shit lifestyles, Mm -hmm. we see that impact is massive and it's cumulative and it never seems to go away unless you take steps to make it go away, right? So when you have people who are just not sleeping enough all the time, they say, I can get by on five hours of sleep. It's like, yeah, you're alive. You can get by, but you're not getting the most out of your training or the most gains that you could be getting, right? Like, so you're not training as hard as you could be, nor are you reaping the biggest rewards, if you are chronically stressed out all the time, right? If you're, if you're somebody who has a really, really crazy job, like maybe you're a stockbroker or a lawyer, you wake up at the butt crack of dawn, you're doing coffee all day until the moment you get home when you switch promptly to whiskey or heroin, whatever it is that you like to do, right? And you're still doing emails, you're still flipping out, right? There is no way that you are going to be moving in a productive manner towards your athletic or even just, you know, physique and health related goals. It's just not going to happen. There's too many confounders, too many obstacles. We see that not only on the just time scale level, right? There's just not enough time throughout the day for you to do what you need, but we also see it in terms of recovery resources and your ability to make progress and gains and train harder and harder and harder. So what we find is that, yeah, We see the acute fatigue that you get from doing physical hard work, whether it's in the gym or if you're mowing the lawn or something like that. But then what we also find is psychological stress, emotional stress, um, just the stress of doing your daily routine if you have a really hard job, other additional physical stressors, like if you do manual labor, all of those things add up in the big picture of fatigue. And we know that fatigue is going to really limit how much preparedness you have, meaning how hard you can actually go and train, but also limit your ability to actually continue training down the road. And you might actually find yourself in a perpetual state of like overreaching for a week or two at a time, then backing off and training for a week and then overreaching again. So the implications are massive. And that was one of the things I think we tried to at least do a good job in the book of saying like your lifestyle plays a huge role in this. It's not just what you do in the gym and then whatever protein shake you have immediately after you have to adjust your lifestyle to accommodate the rigors of really, really hard training. I agree. And I think that one of the hard things that comes with that, that assertion, that notion, or that idea um, that the lifestyle does play an important factor is that it's in a lot of cases hard for people to control. Um, it's it, like, if, if you have Definitely. that job, you have that job, right? <laughs> where it's, where it's really high stress and there's only so much you can do about it. And so that's where people want to dive into these methods financially like, like massage or like cupping or whatever it happens to, whatever that method is. Um, they want to spend more time and resources on that than they can on just revitalizing their lifestyle. Um, one of the things that you kind of mentioned was, was sleep. And that's something I kind of wanted to dive in a little bit more to. Obviously we know the industry standard, you know, get seven to eight hours of sleep or seven to nine, depending on, you know, how old you are, your, your workout methodology, all those kinds of factors. But as, Within the literature, was there any sort of information that, you know, just said that some people are bad sleepers or what about parents who, you know, just have those kids that run into their rooms at at five in the morning and just ruin their sleep or wreak havoc on their sleep? Because I know that's one of the things I come across a lot of is just talking to to people who have young kids and and I always ask them, like, how is sleep? And they would be like, ugh. 
They just laugh at you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, how is sleep if you guys didn't have kids? They're like, oh, great. It'd be awesome. But they, yeah. that's not the reality, right? So how do you, how do you navigate that? And what, the, what kind of science did you find on that? So it's really, really tough because the science on that tends to be kind of cold and unforgiving, but it definitely opens up for some cool discussion points. So what we do find in the literature, and by the way, if any of you or your listeners are interested in all things sleep related, I highly recommend uh, Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. He was on Joe Rogan a little while ago. Uh, it's also an, available in audiobook format. Amazing book on sleep and tons of really good content there. Um, but what we find generally is that the literature consistently supports the idea that for the majority of people outside of a very few exceptions, six hours tends to be kind of the minimum you need for getting what most people would consider like a, a reasonable amount of sleep, kind of the minimum threshold for functioning at a pretty good level, right? Not just alive and functioning, but functioning like pretty normally. They usually say at least six hours. Now, that is going to be a little bit variable. Now, on the other end, if you have people who are really, really highly active, uh, especially if you have like a collegiate athlete, maybe they're training three times a day for soccer or rugby or basketball or something, right? We also can see that they might need a lot more sleep. They might need to be upwards of like 10 hours per day. And so kind of the tried and true, like, you know, you see kind of the same numbers popping up again, like seven to nine or eight hours of sleep. Those end up being pretty good numbers on average. So for the most part, we usually want to see people somewhere around the eight hour mark, plus or minus, depending on individual response. Now, that being said, what do you do when you have unusual situations like parenting where your kids may be up all night or you have to do frequent potty breaks or feeding or pumping or whatever if you're for, for the ladies or maybe you work a non-traditional job like maybe you're a shift worker or something like that and they do seem to have a consistent response in that if that is disruptive to your sleep schedule, which it almost certainly is, it will start to have negative impacts to your health and certainly your performance, uh, which is starts to become a lesser uh, constraint, right? At some point, we're actually not really worried about performance anymore because we're, we're up all night dealing with kids. There's no reasonable expectation that you're going to be an IFBB pro bodybuilder, at least for, for sure. the time being, right? Um, and so what we're more concerned with is we start to see the uh, negative effects start affecting your health. And they've actually shown that, a lack of sleep, so not getting that kind of minimum six hours per night consistently is not only obesogenic, it makes you fatter on average, it's also carcinogenic and can lead to increased rates of things like cancer. Um, so it's really, really bad on a variety of levels. Um, so I think one of the things that we have to manage with our clients and people that we work with is this idea of trade-offs where you might have just started a family and you may have a child that needs a lot of care it's perfectly okay to shift your focus and shift your things that are, are important to you and say, for the next you know, one to two years, I have to deal with this baby and I'm not going to be in my peak physical condition, nor am I going to be able to make tons and tons and tons of gains. Probably what's a better idea is I know my sleep is going to be compromised, but my family is most important to me. So I'm going to put my training and or my diet on maintenance for a little bit. And there's absolutely no shame in that. People have this kind of like ego pride feeling of like, oh, I can't just like not be making progress for a while. But at the same time, like, is your progress more important than the <laughs> health and well-being of your, your family? You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like one of those silly things. And then most people have that epiphany on their own and then they just don't go to the gym as much. But what we can also say is like, look, it's just a matter of trade-offs. It doesn't mean that you can't go to the gym. It does mean that your performance and your recovery will be impaired probably to the point where you won't see a very significant rate of gain for whatever it is that you're doing. So 
instead of feeling disappointed and down on yourself or throwing in the towel completely, why not just recognize the trade-off and say, I'm just going to do maintenance training. That's two to three times a week, maybe an hour per day. I'm going to do maintenance diet because I know these things are going to be impaired. And once my, you know, either baby or job situation is a little bit more stable, then I can start thinking about getting back to the gym and training like up to my MRV again. But for the time being, I'm just going to table that and come back to it later. And I think that's a very reasonable position. I think that, 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 uh, that time, that internal thinking is something that a lot of people could do at a lot of stages in their life, right? Like a lot oh, of yeah. high stress points of their life. Like in, in terms of like, this is mostly to a CrossFit demographic, but you know, it, it, when you talk about that, it just, it brings so much to mind of like, you know, for, for two to three times a week, you might not be doing hero wads and crushing yourself through the ground, but maybe you just, you focus on some functional bodybuilding, um, some things that are going to be, you know, not as high in fatigue, uh, when it comes to the workout methodologies, for sure. So I think that's something important to, to look at. Absolutely. And like the maintenance volume to maintain your muscle mass is abysmally low, right? It's one of these things like, yeah, you won't be performing at your best CrossFit wad workouts or any of that kind of stuff. But really, like, what do you need to do? Like, maintain your muscle mass, maintain some basic cardiovascular health and fitness, like that's not very hard. And you can do that like for, you know, three hours a week, basically. Boom, good to go. Yeah. And, and, and I think... Being that you're bringing it up, I think it's a great time to go into the maintenance volume and all of the different types of um, the different types of volume. Uh, what's, what's your terminology that you guys use for it? the volume landmarks, right? Yes. Um, what's the so let's let's go through I guess maintenance one first, or unless you find it another a fruitful way to go through a different one first. But I did like the the one of the maintenance ones. I I thought when you did you guys did your lecture here in Calgary, that was one of the best things that came out of it, just because when you when you're so much i think right now there's such a addiction to almost working out um to the point that like you, if you feel like you missed one more day than you like if you normally work out five days a week and you went four this week you're like i guarantee i got fat in that one in that one day and i'm and i have no more no more right, <laughs> right. And, it's, and it's just not true but it's it's so interesting that that's that's what you guys talked about so yeah let's go into maintenance volume i guess to start off with I think the maintenance volume is my favorite one to talk about. And it's ironically like the least sexy one. Like nobody gives a shit about maintenance volume. They're like, why well, get that out of here? I don't care about that. But the maintenance volume is really cool because it's basically a way of quantifying what is the least amount of training you need to do to not decondition. And then you can put that into different contexts. So at RP, we we're usually looking at muscle mass maintenance, right? But you could also look at strength maintenance, power speed, cardio, you know, even flexibility. You could take whatever fitness that you want to, uh, measure and you can say there's a maintenance volume you need to do to not get worse at that right mm -hmm. and so what's the big benefit of that well turns out it's really really good for making major lifestyle changes like we were just talking about right where you say like okay i can't dedicate that much time to training but i don't want to decondition i know that as long as i hit you know six sets of quads per week my quads won't shrink that's the idea right now what's really cool is we can also take that same idea and expand it into some other uh, categories things like taking deloads once per mesocycle what we can say we can actually just put our training volume down to maintenance levels for one week out of our mesocycle after the hardest week we're not actually going to lose any fitness but we're going to drop off a massive amount of fatigue so that we can keep training harder and harder and harder for months to come and we can even take that idea and break it down onto a daily scale where we can say you know what i don't have to necessarily hit 20 sets of chest today i can actually just do like two 
and give my chest a really good uh, chance to recover a little bit because maybe my bench press numbers are actually going down this week for some odd reason. I'm not sure why. You know what? You can just take a light session, do two sets of bench, right? Let those pecs heal up, let those triceps heal up. And when you come back to the next time you train chest, you're probably going to be back to normal or at least very close to it. So the maintenance volume is this really cool idea where we can use it in a variety of settings to really bring fatigue down massively while continuing to train. So it, it kind of strikes two, two birds with one stone. It feeds our ego in the sense that we can keep training. You don't have to just sit at home and do nothing, but you're also doing such light training that it actually is promoting recovery, which is pretty cool. Something that we do a lot in, uh, in kind of the bodybuilding and physique scene is we'll actually put some muscle groups on maintenance volume just for the purposes of trying to build other ones up. So a really good example is when people want to do like an arm emphasis, especially like men, right? They go, okay, I really want to focus on the guns, this, this, this block of training. So one thing that they can do is if they want to train more arms and get more gains, well, you can't just add more arms. That's kind of the problem. You have systemic fatigue limitations. You only have so much training that you can do. So what do you do? Well, it turns out you can just take the other muscle groups that you're training, like legs or chest or back or any and all of the above, and bring that down really, really substantially, all the way down potentially to maintenance volumes, which frees up a ton of training and recovery resources for you to do more things like, that you want, like arms. And so one of the big things uh, for making gains, especially for intermediate and advanced athletes, whether you consider yourself an athlete or not, but people who are at the intermediate or advanced level of training, right? You can't train at everything at once anymore. And so the way that you actually make progress is by doing little specialization phases, whether it's for strength or muscle mass. You say, I'm going to really focus on my quads. The only way I can make gains on quads is if I pump my volume up. The only way I can pump my volume up is by pumping other things down. And we use the maintenance volume to ensure that they don't actually lose progress on whatever it is that they're pumping down. Yeah, I, I actually love it. I got, and it's, it's a great idea in terms of how you can apply to things. Um, one of them I wanted to dig into a little bit more, but I want to use myself as an example. So like right now, for example, I'm training to get better at CrossFit, but the biggest things I struggle with are the Olympic lifts and just leg strength in general. So we're doing a lot more strength development on, the, on squatting. So front squatting, back squatting, but also the Olympic lifts while not doing as many Metcons. So I, do, I, I do really do two cardio sessions really a week. Um, so that's kind of my, my maintenance volume, bringing down my engine just to kind of maintain it. Um, but keeping and pushing the, the volume with weightlifting and stuff like that. But one of the questions I had for you was the signs and symptoms of when you want to auto-regulate and self-regulate within, within those, uh, those periods of active overreaching or, um, or, or just in regular training, for example, on, on Monday, I noticed within myself, I was doing the snatch and, and my movement quality was just kind of all over the place. Energy wasn't totally there. Motivation wasn't there. So I kind of just left it for the day and didn't, and didn't try to hurt myself or go further within uh, bad movement quality. But how do you, uh, how do you notice those kinds of things within training or, or talk about those? Yeah. And, and what you experience there is like classic signs of like too much fatigue to do whatever it is that you're trying to do, right? You're disinterested, yep. your, your movement quality is bad. You just, you got no pep in your step. Those are classic, right? So the, uh, one of the things that we like to, uh, to advocate for is using both pre-planned and auto-regulated strategies. There, there seems to be this weird kind of dichotomy in fitness where some people are 
only on the auto regulation boat. They say, that's the only thing you should do. You should never do planned, you know, deloads or anything like that. And then there's kind of like the classic sports science people who are like, you should always do pre-planned and never deviate from the program. The more you deviate from the program, the more variation that you cause and that creates its own problems. So we like to say meet in the middle, right? You should probably have a deload and some fatigue management strategies built into your plan already based on your experience and how long you know you can go for training and da 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 da, right? And then what we would add on top of that is say, auto-regulate on a needs basis. The trick and the problem comes is uh, how do you define when the need arises, right? You have to have some reasonable cutoffs to actually say, I need to do auto-regulation on this day. So we use a couple really handy ones. Performance being probably the biggest one, right? If your performance is going down, right, that's usually not a great sign. Why? Well, performance is actually the outcome measurement, right? So if that's going down, most of our systems are probably struggling to keep up at that point. So it's a very good indicator that you're probably too fatigued to be doing whatever it is that you're trying to, be, to do, right? So performance is usually the big one that we look for. After that, we can start to look at things like your ability to express good technique. And some things are very sensitive to that, especially highly complicated movements like your snatch, your clean and jerk, things like that. If you just feel like, a wet noodle or you just feel like rock man where you just can't, you just, you just like, I don't know what's wrong with me today. I just feel uncoordinated. I just feel shitty. I just can't hit these positions, right? You're trying to hit the double knee bends and all that stuff. And it's just not happening. That's a good sign that your central fatigue is also very high. You're actually, your fatigue is too high for you to actually make a smooth coordinated movement that you have rehearsed countless times, right? So another good sign. Uh, mood and affect are also very classic. This is where we start to get into psychological and perceptive measures. The only problem with those is, like many other measurements, as a standalone thing, like if you say like, are you feeling stressed out today? Or are you feeling anxious today? Or is your mood in the toilet today? Those things are fleeting. They wax and wane like, you know, like the moon. So the problem you see is, although they can be useful, you can just have a bad day, right? Somebody could flip you off on the way to work. You know, your dog could eat your mom. All sorts of weird shit happens. So by themselves, they're not that powerful. But in conjunction with seeing other things like your movement qualities down, your uh, performance is going down, and then you're also reporting feeling anxious or feeling like the world around you is collapsing or you're kind of having like oddly nihilistic thoughts like, there's nothing I can do, fuck it. Like everything's, uh, I can't fix my life. My life sucks and everything's bad, Right. That's another classic sign of overreaching, things like that. And then another good one, which is kind of ties into performance, is usually um, how explosive and fast you feel like you can move. We know that power and speed are both very, very sensitive to fatigue. And if you're training for something like a snatch or a clean and jerk, not only do you have to be able to execute the technique properly to hit all the positions and hit them and, and complete the lift, but you also have to be able to generate high enough power and speed to actually overload the movement itself and continue making progress. So one of the things that we see is if you're actually just moving slow, if you're actually not explosive and just kind of going through the motions without much pep in your step, you're actually not able to generate the overload you need for training. So at that point, you're just doing junk volume. So those are the things that you can definitely see and use auto-regulation for. So if you show up to the gym, you unrack the bar for a, a squat or something and you're shaking and you're like, fuck, 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 this is just not happening today, right? Those are times where you say, you know what, maybe I'll take a light day. I wasn't planning on taking a light day, but things are just not where they're supposed to be. I'll take a light day today, come back tomorrow, see where I'm at. If the problem persists, I might take one more light day 
to see if that fixes it. And if it doesn't, I'm going to take an auto-regulated deload, go back to the drawing board, see where maybe I made a mistake in some of my, my numbers and calculations and fix it for next time. On the other hand, sometimes it works perfectly where you say, I'm just going to take a light day today, come back tomorrow, see what happens. And tomorrow you're back to normal. It turns out you just had a shitty day and that was it and you fixed it. Boom. So it's good to have some numbers. It's good to uh, not just um, play it by ear or just go totally qualitatively by feel. It's good to do a little bit of both. Have some qualitative, have some quantitative and create reasonable cutoffs for yourself where you say, if I'm not hitting these numbers or I'm not moving this way or if my coach says you look like shit today, it's time to do some auto-regulation. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think you're totally right. There's some things in there that are definitely variable. And like I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the technology that we have today in some ways definitely helps with, with some of that in terms of, you know, you can measure HRV, you can measure sleep um, because you're right. Like, you know, stress and mood are, are things that certainly have an impact on it, but you know, you can't, you, you can't be like, well, I'm ready to train today. I only kicked the dog twice today. So I, my usual <laughs> average is four. So it's, it's fine. Right. So like, I totally, I totally get that. That's awesome. Um, when it comes to the volume landmarks, can we go over just a brief, uh, a brief synopsis, Cole's notes with regards to the MRV, MEV, MAV? Um, oh, sure. Because I think it's, it's super important that people know what these kinds of things are um, because it, it, it is like, it's so variable within all those things. And it's, it's interesting before I read this book, it was like, I mean, I was still very new to the, uh, the fitness space, if you will. But um, it was just like if, if, you know, if four by 10 is going to get my legs bigger and stronger, then eight by 10 must be what I need. Like you, you just have to do more. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people fall into that trap still today, despite the education, like this book that is around. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a fun one to talk about with, with my background since we were mostly on the training side of things. Um, the, the volume landmarks is kind of uh, uh, just the system that we use to develop the tools to say, what is the least amount of training I need to do to not get worse? You know, how much training do I need to do to get better? And like, what's the total top end that I can tolerate from all my different sources? So I think the top end one is probably the easiest to kind of intuitively understand for most people. And that's what we have called the MRV, the maximum recoverable volume. The MRV is basically the upper limit of how much training you can do from all of the sources that you do. So if you're a bodybuilder, it's basically how much weight training can you do? If you're a CrossFitter, it's a combination of Metcons, strength work, wads, flexibility, mobility stuff, all that stuff. And you kind of add them all together and you say, what is the total amount of training, whether in volume or duration or whatever it is before I start to notice that I'm not able to recover from session to session, week to week, month to month, or uh, I just start to actually see performance decreases, right? And we know that's the point at which there's no return. There's nothing you can do to fix that except for do less. So there's essentially a breaking point. The MRV is your breaking point where you're no longer making progress. At best, you're able to come back and kind of just hang in there and keep doing what you've been doing, but you're hanging on by a thread. That's the best outcome you can get. More likely is you're going to start to see either diminishing and or negative returns, right? So that's the top end. On the lower end, we have the kind of the polar opposite idea, which is the MEV, or the minimum effective volume. And that really is just basically saying, how much training do I need to do to actually make measurable progress? Not progress where I, th I think I'm getting better, or I think I'm getting stronger, or I think I'm getting more jacked. How can I be pretty damn sure that I have hit the, the, the least amount that I, I need to do to actually grow or make more gains in fitness, right? And so that one's really helpful because we need a good starting point. We need a jumping off point for our mesocycles so that we can not do more than we need to 
and fulfill our progressive overload component, which has that time component where whatever we do throughout a mesocycle has to incrementally get harder through a combination of either volume or intensity or both. So we have to start as low as we can and build up as high as we can. And that gap between those two numbers is what we call the MAV or the maximal adaptive volume, which is basically at any given time, kind of the sweet spot where you're doing just enough right, to get the most outcomes that you can. And that kind of is like the, um, the best ratio of the good things and the bad things that are coming from training because it's feasible, right, where you might get just a ridiculously good growth stimulus from six sets in a session, right? And that's just, it's like fantastic. Could you possibly get more growth from doing 10 sets in a session? Maybe, but the catabolic cost of doing all that extra damage to the tissues might create a net less growth situation, right? So you, you presented a bigger stimulus, but it came with more baggage at the same time. So the MAV is kind of the balance in between those things where what is the best bang for your buck at any given time scale throughout the mesocycle in terms of making progress in fitness. And so we kind of put these things together originally because we were working in collegiate strength conditioning and we were trying to tell coaches to stop making their athletes run suicides or throw up around the track, right? Right? We were like, don't do that. There's no, there's no reason for that. And there's a breaking point. They're like, whatever. We don't give a shit. More suicides, <laughs> more you know, stadium sprints, blah, barfing all over the place. And so that was really kind of the idea. But then we were like, no, okay. We got to build on this idea of there's a breaking point and say, well, there's a starting point and there's a big space, a big space in between those things, which can change over time. And so the volume landmarks is kind of the system we use uh, to build our mesocycles and encourage people to train a little bit more quantitatively. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love that. I think it's just a, it's part of the, the data, right? It's part of knowing if you're like, I think so few people are still actually keeping accurate records, whether they're improving or not, whether they're actually able to see that. Um, one of the things that I found in the, I think the reason I kind of got into the book to start off with was the idea of overtraining. It's one of these things that people have, uh, researchers right, have even gone back and forth on whether it, the concept actually exists. Um, for years, but I think we've come to more of a general understanding that it is a real thing that exists. Um, but how do you define overtraining and, and what are your, I guess, what were your initial thoughts on that prior to writing the book and did they change within writing the book? Yeah, so our thoughts didn't change too much because Mike and I had a formal schooling in a lot of these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I think what, what we found is that most people confuse the idea of either functional overreaching uh, and non-functional overreaching with overtraining, right? And so yep. people will often, and maybe they're doing this casually because they, they don't know the, the actual terminology and the nomenclature, and that's fine. I think a lot of people do get it confused where they'll say like, oh, I'm like, I'm just so beat up. I think I'm really like overtrained. The thing with overtraining, right, is that it cannot be fixed with acute fatigue management measures, right? Taking a light day or a deload or even a low volume mesocycle, like a resensitization phase or an active rest phase is not enough to fix the imbalances caused by overtraining. So the thing that I think is very enlightening about overtraining is that people who actually can find themselves overtrained are not only incredibly dumb, but incredibly tough, which is kind of an awesome combination, right? Because <laughs> there's no mistaking, right? These are signs and symptoms where all normal people would understand that there's something wrong, right? They are going way above and beyond what they're capable of doing. And so there's kind of a, a willful ignorance to the fact that you are fucked up. And 
you can tolerate an incredible amount of pain and discomfort, right? Now, there's kind of two big branches of overreaching. One of them is more, uh, excuse me, overtraining. One of them is more, I don't want to say acute because it's a chronic problem, but in the, in the grand scheme of like a lifespan, it's more on the acute side where it might take like six months, maybe upwards of a year or two years to kind of get back to normal, but it's reversible or largely reversible. And some of the negative effects that you have had can be fixed by just training a whole lot less for a long period of time. On the other hand, there's more of a chronic overreaching sense in which you actually have trained yourself and grind yourself so hard that you have done irreparable damage to your body systems and you will never recover. And that is a real feasible problem. But the good news is, is like I said, in order to get there, you have to be incredibly dumb and tough because a normal, reasonable person and especially an evidence-based person would see what is happening. They would see the performance decrease. They would see the mood changes. They would see the injuries. They would see the blood work. They would see the illness, right? All these things that are saying, you are fucked up. You need to cool it, right? I think a reasonable person would at least look into it a little bit. And so we're seeing like the people who really find themselves in these more dire situations are tough beyond their own, uh, their own self-interest, which is kind of cool, but also bad. So um, the good news is, is true overtraining uh, is very, very difficult to achieve. Whereas overreaching acutely is something that, although it's not always good, can be very positive and really stimulating a lot of gains and is very manageable and uh, encouraged gently encouraged under the, uh, the idea of evidence-based practice. So what we don't want to say is go and grind until you're overreached all the time. No, what we want to say is, you know, build yourself up, find that upper limit, figure out where it is. And then once you hit it, hit the brakes, take the time to recover and then get back to training. Yeah, I think that's a really good point too. And I think one of the, the questions that I kind of had regarding that was its impact on one of the recovery modalities that you reference in the book, and that is nutrition, right? And I think one of the things, and you can speak to more about this, but one of the things that potentially could make overtraining, overreaching, um, and non-functional overreaching even worse is the dieting culture that uh, so many oh, people yeah. are on today, right? I think and that's one of the things that your, your now wife, Melissa, talked about at uh, the, the seminar was just the fact that, you know, diets should only last a, a, a three month or maybe on the high end four month period of time. Uh, they're not something that you're supposed to be doing for years on end, right? And I think that there's a lot of people, whether they're coming to you, whether they're coming to RP in general, um, have been dieting for years, right? So how, speak to oh, yeah. how that impacts uh, the, the ability to overtrain and, and the ability to I guess, put too much stress in the body that you're overtraining faster than the person who's eating at a uh, hypercaloric or even eucaloric level. Yeah, absolutely. So calories is one of the big key players in the game in terms of recovering and having good training, right? So what we found is that a hypocaloric state is, is a, is a one-way ticket to fatigueville, right? There's no, there's no, uh, like debate about it. It's one of these things where people love to, to think that they can diet and it doesn't really affect them in any negative ways. It's no, the diet is, is you have lit a fuse on a bomb, right? That's the reality. Your time is limited. And the longer you try to make it go, the worse the effect is going to be. So we like to, it's, it's literally like a fuse because you are starting to rob your body's resources from an energy perspective, right? Where you're saying, I am now having to take away from what is stored within myself to accommodate my daily activity levels, right? What's, whatever I'm eating and coming in is no longer sufficient to sustain me. And I only have so much that I can give. You know, some people obviously have more than others. Like here in the United States, we got some big 
some big fatties and they can actually go. Uh, Mike and I were talking about this the other day. Some guy actually went for like a year with just hydration and vitamins and minerals. He actually did not physically eat and he was perfectly healthy. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of, I, I, actually, my boss and I were just talking about this the other day, that a lot of these clinical fasting trials that are going on right now, like with just researchers pumping them full of vitamins, but not, like you said, not feeding them, which is, it seems crazy. But I mean, when you have that much fat tissue, to release, yes. not the craziest thing in the world, I guess. It's, it's hard to think of like somebody not actually eating for a year, but you have to keep in mind, like fat is so energy dense. We have so much of it. Even if you're a healthy body composition, like you're not overly fat, you have more energy stored in your body than you, than you know what to do with. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's great. But unfortunately it still takes a big toll on your body to start liberating all those things. So the diet is something that we see really starts to put people in a really bad fatigue state. Now, a lot of people aren't used to doing hard dieting and they're not used to the psychological burden that comes with that. And so that starts to elevate their stress levels. They get hunger. They don't know how to deal with the hunger and the cravings and the and just the general tiredness and the lethargy that comes with dieting. It's its own big thing, right? And so now what we see is uh, from a training perspective, if you're doing a, a hypocaloric diet, you have to counterbalance the super catabolic effect of that diet by training slightly more than you normally would. So we'd say your MEV goes up just so you don't lose muscle because now you're in a, a catabolic state. But the amount of training that you can actually tolerate goes down. So we see the MEV, MRV window starts to get more narrow, which becomes very difficult to manage. And one other thing that's kind of unique with the diet that's maybe you can tie it into training, but it's kind of unique to the diet itself is that you can have people who suppress their metabolic rates so low for so long that it might take months, even upwards of years, to get their metabolic rate back up to a level that supports a healthy lifestyle and supports future weight loss. So this is one of those things that uh, we see all the time. And again, you have to be incredibly tough to find yourself in this position. But we get clients, and, I, and with you know trying to tiptoe on the political correctness scale here. I think this is more of a female problem than it is generally for males. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of, we get a lot of um, clients who will just diet themselves into oblivion for like eight months or more. And they come to us and they're like, I want to try and lose, you know, 20 pounds or whatever. And we're like, okay, what have you been doing the last, you know, however long? And they're like, oh, I've been dieting for eight months. And it's like, dude, you're going to have to just eat more food for the next eight months before we can even talk about dieting. So a lot of times we have to turn clients away. And my wife, Dr. Dr. Wife, she has this conversation all the time with new clients where they're like, I'm ready to start. And she's like, no, you're not. This is going to be a disaster. And I, you know, we could take your money and just say like, oh yeah, let's go for it. But the reality is, is it's a lose-lose, right? That person's not going to get the goals they want. What they have to do is actually spend enough time and enough calories just eating more and more and more to get their metabolic rate back to a robust level so that they can do continued weight loss. That might even mean that they have to actually do weight gain for a little while just to get that up. So it's, it's, it can be a nasty situation. So you pair that with a, a tendency to overreach prematurely um, and where you have to do more fatigue management all the time because you, you haven't figured out that your MRV has gone down and you're trying to train hard, you're trying to lose weight, you're doing all this cardio, you're dieting it ends up just being a really nasty fatigue nightmare in a lot of cases. So I think one thing that we try to remind people of is like, Hey, if you're going to do a cut diet, you want to make sure that you're in a good place to start because if you start in an already restricted state, it's only going to get worse, right? So you want to be starting in a good place and you have to understand you're not going to be able to train quite as much as you used to when you were in a eucaloric or hypercaloric state. And 
at best, we're going to hope to maintain the games that, gains that you have. Now, if you're a novice client, like if they're totally brand new to diet and training, could they make some beginner gains? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great kind of recomping problem to have. But for the intermediate client and up, the understanding should be, look, we're going to try and maintain our gains. If you have some temporary, you might see some gain, uh, some performance measures going down. But for the most part, as long as they're not plummeting down, they will come back when you start eating normally and take your training volumes down a little bit. Those are kind of the expectations that we want to set. So I think a lot of people make the mistake of saying like, oh yeah, you can start this diet, you'll be fine. Uh, and they just crush people with hard training, hard dieting. And then when the diet's over, the person's like, okay, now what do I do? Uh, and they don't get any guidance. They don't get any help. And they just say like, oh, I paid for my program. See ya. They go back to their old habits. They just blow up and put all the weight back on. And now they're just as fat as they were, but their met metabolic rate hasn't recovered. It's going to take a few months for them to actually get back to weight loss. So man, so much there. It's a disaster sometimes. And it really requires some good communication between the, the client and the, the trainer and all those people involved. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things as a, as a coach or as a nutrition coach in general, just because like there's so many people that will come to you, like someone like your, your wife, for example, and you know, they're already what they consider 20 pounds overweight and you're telling them that they can't lose weight for, you know, months at a time. So I get the frustration on their end for sure, but it's also like your, your body's just not ready for it. If you're eating 1300 calories a day and you're not hungry, there's, there's an issue there. There's something, there's yes. something that's going on there. Absolutely. Um, and then I'm sure as you notice, when you say that to a client, they go, Oh, that's nice. I'm going to go to this other guy who says he, he doesn't mind dieting me more. And so you exactly. potentially lose clients on the moral high ground, but maybe not great for your business at the same time. Exactly. A hundred percent. One of the questions I had within that, because you mentioned that calories are the most important and we often in the fitness space see these buzzwords, buzz ideas and cultures kind of shift in and out. Um, and one of those is keto. Um, and obviously people are super into that. Um, I think, I think it's less maybe now than it was a year ago. Um, maybe it's on the downturn or maybe it's just plateauing. I have no idea. Um, but it's one of the questions I get a ton of was is talking about keto. Does that seem to make a considerable difference um, for someone if they're looking for uh, trying to recover as well? Because I know that's something that, you know, people have played around with when it comes to CrossFit for sure. Um, and, I, and obviously CrossFit is a glycolytic sport along with a lot of the sports and, and workout methodologies that people use. Um, and keto, you know, might be good for weight loss. Um, people will say it's better. It's, it's really not as, as, as far as the research is concerned. But um, from a recovery perspective, does it make it an insufficient diet? Absolutely. Uh, and so given my background, sometimes we tend to be really hard-nosed on the keto thing where we're like, that's stupid. Don't do that. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is for when you have people who are kind of average Joes who are just trying to be more fit and more healthy, I think keto is perfectly fine. Now, if you have somebody who has really, really big athletic aspirations where they're doing it more than just for fun and recreation, they are trying to be actively competitive or maybe even hit high levels of performance, right? Then we can make a much stronger case that keto is probably not good, even during a weight loss phase. Now, you might find that you have taken a client, they had uh, you know, robust maintenance calories, and you have started incrementally lowering their fats and carbs to, to meet their weight loss goals. And you might actually find like to actually continue them to, for them to continue productive weight loss, you might actually go into keto for a week or two and then finish the diet, right? I think that is perfectly okay. 
But I have also found over the last, you know, however many years I've been working with diet stuff that when I have brought people all the way down through calorie restrict, progressive calorie restriction, not just saying, okay, we're going right to keto. We go, we're going to reduce fats, reduce fats, reduce carbs, reduce carbs. Okay. Now there's no more carbs, right? Now they're basically doing keto. However you want to phrase it. The problem is, is they get, they have uh, a good weight loss result but they have a really, really bad long-term outcome because the more you crush them on the diet, and essentially if you are bringing fats down and you get carbs down to the point of where they're effectively doing keto, um, you have really, really suppressed their metabolic rate down to pretty bare bones levels. So what I have found is you get kind of a short-term gain, but you have a long t- uh, uh, long-term problems in that you have to spend more time building their calories back up to robust levels in the long term. So I think for the most part, if you're doing keto for weight loss, it's perfectly okay if you're just doing it for health and fitness and wellness and it's something that you can adhere to, right? It's one of those like if doing mm-hmm. a regular diet is too difficult for you and but keto is something that you will do and will follow, great. On the other hand, if you're somebody who needs to maintain a high level of performance, I would strongly advise against keto. We know that carbohydrates are directly related to not only performance ability, but also recovery ability. They set the cellular conditions needed for anabolism in many cases in a variety of mechanisms. So it's an inherently bad choice for those who are trying to perform well. If you need to do it out of necessity for weight loss purposes, use it sparingly. It's not something I would recommend doing like on the regular Uh, whenever you're doing body composition alteration, use it for only the most desperate of times. And then know that if you do choose to go that route, it might take a few extra months to get your calories back up to robust levels. So that's usually where I I used to take a harder line on keto because of my like kind of traditional sporting background. But again, I think it's really only a big issue for those who are really into the sporting and competition world. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think like my, like my parents both do keto and they're not, they're not trying to be any type of athlete by any stretch of imagination. They just like eating bacon, butter and cheese all the time. Um, so have yeah, at it. Right if on. I, if right that's on. what you want to do, go for it. Um, I enjoy my carbs too. too much. The thing with keto is it makes you smell bad. <laughs> have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. Especially the breath, right? Yes. Yes. And I'll get like the bacon sweats where I just start to smell like, like pork products. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure your wife loves that. Yeah. No, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so without going into like a two hour episode, cause I mean, there's so much here and that's why, like, I think people, if you're interested, if this has all caught your interest and you're still listening to this, you should probably read the book. Um, but talking about the therapeutic and supplemental strategies um, and talking about the the methodologies that people spend their time and money on uh, when it comes to whether it be chiral massage, cupping, electrostimulation, um, all these different ones. That there's a hundred ones that we, I can't even think of. Um, where do we? Is there is there anything that within these strategies that surprised you that was like okay, like you know, all of them, everyone, I guess responds individually but this one might be the closest one where everyone finds relaxation through or what did you find through that yeah so, so there's a bunch of different strategies that we, we kind of looked at in the book and uh, the kind of classic ones are kind of like your your temperature ones like your cold your heat your contrast and no big surprises there the compression was another one where we found like very consistently in the literature always seems to have an effect but it's always consistently small um some of the other ones were surprising, like the massage, I think was one that was really surprising for a lot of us because uh, I grew up in the, you know, in the 1980s 
And there at the time, growing up as a young adult and a young man, it was kind of like, I just assumed that massage was great for all a variety of reasons, right? It was like, if you're not doing a massage, are you even taking your sport seriously? And so, but if you actually go and look through the literature on massage, what you find is that there could be some effects from what we, what we called compassionate touch, where basically um, somebody putting their hands on you in a consenting and relaxing way, uh, especially if you have a rapport with them, can kind of decrease total nervous system activity. But we've also found that the massage itself doesn't seem to um, affect any of the physical markers of performance or biomarkers of recovery. So basically what that means is um, if you go and get a massage and you try to do a performance test, you very likely will score less because you are still just as fatigued, at least in the, from a performance standpoint. And if you go and look at things like blood CK levels or you look at T to C ratios, things like that, those will be largely, if not completely, unchanged. So you kind of have this weird conundrum with massage where it's like, okay, people always seem to feel better, but their performance doesn't improve or, uh, or um, recover on an increase, a shortened time scale, nor do any of like the physical markers that seem to indicate recovery is happening. So what's happening? And it turns out most of it is actually just perceptive and psychological. Now that's not to say that that's not important and not meaningful, but what we find is that this one tends to be more subject to what we would call a type one error, which is a false positive, where one feels better, right? And of course, massages feel great. It's something that we've all probably experienced in some capacity, and it always makes you feel wonderful, but it's going to make you feel recovered uh, potentially when you're not actually recovered, right, which is a problem. So it's kind of, um, it's not really a placebo in the sense because there are psychological effects and psychology does end up manifesting in different ways and affecting the physiology, but it can give people that type one error and then possibly perpetuate things like injuries or bad performances, overreaching, et cetera. And so that was one that was really interesting where we, it was very difficult to piecemeal out. What is the actual effect of massage? Is there a compassionate touch effect there? Maybe. Is there a social support effect there? Because you're actually having another person whom you trust enough to touch your body while you're vulnerable, right? Maybe. Is it just a relaxation effect? Maybe. Is it all of the above? Hard to say. So it's one of those things... Um, the massage and the compassionate touch stuff is still kind of a mystery in many ways. It's kind of an open box where we're, we're, we know that there's some kind of effect there, but we're not exactly sure where it comes from. Yeah. And I think that's a, it's a really good point. You kind of bring up because it, it, it has such, you know, like I mentioned, it has such variability from person to person on what you find is relaxing, what you find is enjoyable, those kinds of things. Um, because I've been in massages where, you know, it was a really good experience. And I've been to ones where it's like, why are you trying to tear my lat? from? My oh, back? yeah. Right? Like, and, and, and there's a lot of people that will actually think, you know, that's what I, that's how I know it's a good massage is when, is when they're really inflicting pain on me. That must mean it's good, right? Um, which is not really the case, right? One of the questions I kind of had for you as well was the idea of, of the things like social support and, and just like relaxation through watching TV. How, how important are those things? Are those recovery methods? So like using social support? Yeah. So it was, that was a difficult one for us because uh, it was anyone who's trained in psychology. Uh, it, it's one of those undeniable things where having a network of people, whether they're friends, family, loved ones, coaches, teammates, whatever, who give a shit about your existence in the world. Not only do they give a shit about you, but they actually are invested in the goals and outcomes you have set for yourself. Seems to enhance 
the psychological state in a variety of different ways. And I'm unfortunately not a psychology person. That's why we had to have some help. And, and my wife, Dr. Davis, is a neuroscientist, so she knows all about this kind of stuff and was able to be a massive uh, help on that project. Um, and so what we found is that it's not something you can like PubMed search where you go social support and recovery. <laughs> you'll find absolutely nothing, right? But there is a huge body of indirect literature that shows that if you can keep a positive psychological state, if you can maintain an internal locus of control, meaning although I might be in some ways a slave to the world, I'm at least the captain of my tiny little ship and all the decisions that I make, all the good, all the bad come back to me, right? Those things seem to be very positive and maintaining a good social network, whether it's again, friends, family, loved ones, significant others, et cetera, seems to be a big part of that. And so it's not something that we think is the most important, right? It's not, it's not going to be as powerful as taking like a deload or managing your training volumes or, you know, nutritional stuff. But it's one of those things that's also undeniable in maintaining good psychological states. And we know that psychological state also affects the physical state. So we had to include it in there. And so we wanted to pay, you know, uh, credence to it. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at with that. So it's, again, it's not the most powerful thing in the world, but it's one of those things you can kind of work your way up the pyramid where you say like, I need a little, extra boost. You know, I, 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 I'm doing pretty good on my lifestyle. I'm doing good on my nutrition. I still just, I, I could, I could do more, but I'm just struggling a little bit. And that's when it might be good to start leaning on your friends and family a bit more. You just, you know, having them around, even if it's just to spend the evening watching Netflix or anime or whatever. Um, that's what my cat does for me. We, he's, he's a big, <laughs> big fatty and he loves to watch anime with me on the couch. Um, having that in your life seems to be a good idea, or at least maybe using it more than you did before, rather than doing the kind of traditional toxic male, keep it all in, bottle it up and lash out at people approach. It's probably a better idea to invest in, in people and those around you. Yeah. And I think just to kind of sum up, I think that one of the, one of the ways that made this, uh, this particular book very, very useful was because it's understandability within that pyramid that you mentioned, right? Um, because it's very similar. I don't know if you guys built it the same way with the idea that you're of your nutrition pyramid that um, has become so in, so famous um, within understanding nutrition. And, and I, I had Mike on earlier talking about his his TED talk once upon a time explaining that. Oh, pyramid. Yeah. Um, but it's I mean, yeah, I guess to, to sum up, speak to the importance of following the, the pyramid, because like like the nutrition pyramid, I think so many people get caught up at the very top thinking about supplements um, and how they can Im improve their nutrition instead of looking at the macros and things at the bottom. Whereas with this, I think there's, there's so many people that are looking at the therapeutic and supplemental recovery strategies and have no clue or no recollection or no type of, of training or thinking of the training within your MRV and passive recovery, nutrition and yes. passive recovery before that. Am I right or what are your thoughts there? You nailed it. And, you know, and this is going to sound meaner and, and mean-spirited, but it's really not meant to be. A, a lot of people, kind of like what we were talking about in the beginning when we started, some people have crazy jobs. They have huge, massive restrictions, right? Maybe they can't go and do, change their lifestyle at the moment. So their thought is often like, can I throw money at something to try and get a quick fix, right? Can I buy a, an ice bath or can I get a new compression sleeve or can I do these things? Can I pay for massages, right? Where it's like, you're kind of trying to address the problem, but you're doing it just like in an ineffective way in terms of how powerful those outcomes are going to be. The thing is, right, those things do have a place. They are useful at times, but the biggest bang for your buck is usually going back to the drawing board on your training and altering your lifestyle. And you know what? 
those things are hard. They suck. They take time. They take effort. They take practice. And it's not something that you can fix today or tomorrow. It's something you're going to have to work on for the rest of your life, right? So it's not easy. And a lot of people, whether they um, are avoiding it deliberately or sometimes they just can't, they just don't have the time or effort to make those types of trade-offs where they say, I got bigger fish to fry, homie. I can't sit here and look at how much relaxation time I'm doing throughout the day and go and calculating all these volume landmarks. Totally get it, right? But at the same time, recognize the trade-off. At that point, if you're not willing to take the steps to do those big ticket items, you're not going to get the big ticket results. And that's perfectly okay as long as you recognize it and say, this is how much I'm willing to invest and I should expect to get a corresponding return on my investment. That's kind of the idea. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing with the nutrition. It's funny that both the nutrition and the recovery aspect um, – have the same problem why people look at the top instead of the bottom, right? Just, it's just that time and the quick fix that people are kind of looking for within, um, within the recovery, within the nutrition. Um, but thanks so much for, for coming on. I really appreciate it, James. There's a lot of stuff that we could go hours into, and I'm definitely going to link uh, in the show notes where we can find the, uh, the recovery manual where we can purchase that for sure and get reading on it. Um, and as well as the, as well as the uh, audible version of that, because we all want to hear your voice uh, <laughs> a little bit more. So tell us where we can find you uh, on social media as well. And, and any, any other information, I know RP plus is a good resource for people who are looking uh, to learn a little bit more about stuff like this training, nutrition, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. It was a great chat. Um, I am not super active on social media, but I am, uh, at RP Dr. James on Instagram, which is mostly where I post pictures of my fat cat Piccolo. Uh, <laughs> I'm just myself, uh, James Hoffman on Facebook, and you can find us on renaissanceperiodization.com. Mike and I do the RP Plus weekly webinar. So if you ever want to just shoot us some questions week to week, we'll answer them every week to the best of our ability. And yeah, you can find the recovery book on uh, the RP website, on Amazon, on Audible and iTunes, all that stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I, th I think that's like a really good resource. I've been on RP Plus for a while and there's a there's so much content in there that like it's overwhelming. You kind, of, you kind of need to lock yourself in your apartment for a couple of months just to kind of consume. And then a couple of months after that, to just to kind of decompress after seeing it all. So um, yeah, if you want to learn more about what nutrition training, like I said, it really is an awesome resource to go check out. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs>